0: Hello, and welcome to this week's episode on the epic film, Gladiator, which was written by David Franzoni, John Logan, and William Nicholson, and directed by Ridley Scott. Alan is back in town for this episode, and we also have a special guest, Stuart Voitilla of San Diego State University, who I'll be introducing shortly. In this episode, we look at the two early drafts of Gladiator and compare them to the final film. But we also use the theoretical framework of the hero's journey, which is a prominent analytical method that has its origins in psychoanalysis and comparative mythology and since has become highly influential among many screenwriters. Stewart is an expert in this form of analysis, so I really hope you gain a lot from his insights. As it turns out, Gladiator is a very compelling film to study with this method. Thanks again for continuing to support the show, now on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to The 21st Rewrite, the podcast about screenplays and the process of writing them. I'm William Coldwell, and I'm joined, as always, by my good friend and co-host, Alan Vasquez. Hi, everybody. And today we also have a special guest, Stuart Voitilla. Stuart is a professor of film studies and screenwriting at San Diego State University and author of two books on screenwriting, including Myth and the Movies, Understanding the Mythical Structure of 50 Unforgettable Films.
1: Thank you for inviting me over.
0: So before we begin, could you give our listeners a brief overview of the theoretical approach that you teach and used for screenplay analysis in Myth and the Movies?
1: Yeah, Myth and the Movies, it's based on the work of Joseph Campbell and his very important book, Essential Book, and that's Hero with a Thousand Faces, and his theories were inspiration for uh, filmmakers and storytellers. Uh, specifically, was an inspiration for George Lucas and um, his Star Wars epic. And I, as a writer, a screenwriter, as well as a teacher of screenwriting, am always looking for effective tools that will help us be able to tell more significant stories that resonate with us that actually can survive a a, a single watching and we want to keep watching it again and again. And so Chris Vogler did um, an adaptation essentially of Joseph Campbell's work and he wrote his book, The Writer's Journey. And I had at that time was considering a way of adapting The Writer's Journey as a software program for writers. And the publisher then approached me to work on Myth in the Movies. So Myth in the Movies is actually taking the hero's journey, which often is associated with epic, heroic stories like a Star Wars, or an adventure like Indiana Jones, and realizing that there are essential tools that really are, I feel, universal across all genres. And so can we adapt these tools to help someone if they want to use the hero's journey, if they're going to be writing a romantic comedy, or if they want to write a comedy, or they want to write a Western or a, a war film. And so Myth in the Movies came from looking at 50 films that are difficult for us not to watch if they're all of a sudden we change the channel and there it is to not turn it off and change the channel again like a Casablanca and try and see if in fact it has those elements of the hero's journey in there. And so that's essentially what I've done in the the movies. Yeah, I think
0: Terminator 2 is one of those films as well, which anytime it's on television, I can't stop watching it to the end. So that one's in this book and Wallace and Gromit. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a great collection in here. Do you think Gladiator will be an easy film to analyze through this lens?
1: Um, it, it's a fascinating film to, to analyze. We um, kind of defies a bit of our expectations in a heroic journey. Um, what Maximus has put through. And we can kind of break that down, but it's, it's interesting in terms of how his his goal is defined at the beginning of the movie and then how that's actually re- reworked and then redefined and then he returns to that goal at the end of the film. So it's an interesting. And then he, and he grows. And I think that's the key on the hero's journey is that you're going to have a person who's set off on this journey and it could be a special world that is a physical world that they have to go out on. And in his case, it's going to be a physical world, which is becoming, he's forced into becoming a gladiator um, and that's going to be his existence. And so it can be a physical world. It could be a Luke Skywalker who has to go off on a journey, physical journey, but it can also be an emotional journey. So in a drama like an ordinary people, the main character has to have a relationship that's that can, and push them into an emotional world or a romance romantic comedy is also a good example where they're put not into a new physical world but a new emotional world that's going to test them and the question is whether or not they are going to go through some kind of transformation during the course of that journey and so we see this with Maximus very strongly yeah one of the things
2: that struck me was the villain's journey as well he kind of has a mirror arc as well because he kind of goes through his own journey we meet him already at a certain level of deceit but he grows as well in the opposite direction as maximus you don't see that very often in films where the villain kind of gets that much screen time or that much attention i felt like in this film would you think that he did get more attention from the filmmaker than villains usually do
1: yeah no i I agree with you i think that commodus goes through an amazing arc this descent, that slow descent, there are elements of him that you really root for, the idea that he loves his people, but that he, he loves it in a in a, I guess you can interpret it as more of a wicked way, but he's still, he's out there saying to his his sister that I do, I do love, th- these are, it's Rome, Rome's the people, yeah, but he wants to be emperor of those people.
2: And also the validation and the love that he wants from his father, I think, kind of also tugs at our heartstrings. It did for me this time. I watched it. I I just felt bad for the guy because, you know, his father genuinely did not want him as a son. And that only probably fueled his, his sort of descent. His father did tell him, your failure as a son is the reflection of the failure of me as a father. So he recognized himself that he didn't give him the love that he deserved as, as a son.
1: Yeah, I, I, and it's, it's an a, incredible scene.
2: Yeah. It really is amazing. Yeah. So in the beginning, we actually start with this epic battle. It kind of establishes who our character is, sort of the status quo. And I believe in the original script, it started with Commodus... Arriving at the scene, right? We're
0: talking about the second draft. It's it's a reasonably solid script. It's not the classic Gladiator that we've come to love. But the majority of the key concepts are there. Mm-hmm. They're present by that point. Mm-hmm. And one of the major differences in the opening is that It focuses very much on this idea of Rome as this colonial empire that is harassing and oppressing all of the other countries around it, such as Germania, the the German tribes that that live north of Rome. And one of these German oppressed citizens starts speaking out to them, and he basically gives a speech quite like Maximus does in, in the arena where he says that you killed my you killed my family and you mm. took everything away from me. And and so there's actually these parallels that later they realized that wasn't the focus of the film. It, it was when William Nicholson was brought into the film that I feel that the screenplay really took off. And he identified some very key concepts that are not present in that second draft, such as this recurring motif of what you do in life echoes in eternity and this transcendent force whereby Maximus's wishes or wants as a character, his needs are to actually return to his family in the afterlife. And the afterlife is treated as a very real place that he can get to. And he just has this intention of dying in the best possible way. He's ready to die by about midway through the film. He's perfectly happy to die, but he chooses to carry on fighting in order to avenge Mm -hmm. Marcus Aurelius' death and kill Commodus and his own family's death.
1: Well, although it it is interesting that looking at those drafts, because if you look at the Franzoni draft, his family isn't sacrificed. And so that becomes now what is at stake. And so that his return home is in fact a return to get family. And family becomes an important theme Mm -hmm. in this. And then when you get to the Logan draft, the revision, that we do get the sacrifice of the family. But then we still get the restoration of family in the end because he survives in the end. He's going to live now with Lucius and um, going back to his farm and trying to restore what he what had been destroyed. And then then we get into the Nicholson. What we would imagine is probably what the Nicholson yeah the film revision film is film well, it's the film yeah. version. In in which case, then we have this larger arc that's defined for Maximus, and that is a return to home, which is in fact a return to heaven, or a coming together with his family, which he knows at that point is in heaven, so he has to die in the end.
0: Exactly. And one thing they did to achieve that, I feel, is by toning down the romance between him and Lucilla, which is very prominent in the early drafts, it removes those complications. There is a kiss between them Mm -hmm. in in one of the scenes where she visits him, but it's not entirely romantic it's almost like this last desperation between these two people who know that this is probably the end for them and they do yeah. they do love and admire each other but mm-hmm. it it's always clear that his wife and his son are his priority and when they are gone there is nothing left for him
1: but it's also interesting because there's that suggestion of a, of their backstory, the romance that was there, and it's interesting because both of their sons are the same age. That it's likely that there was a breakage that happened in that relationship that then sent them into their own directions of their finding love, mm-hmm. um, and then with it, they you know they raised sons at the same time, but one of them, you know, unfortunately, is sacrificed.
0: Yeah, the, there's more information in those early drafts about the backstory, which I guess. We don't know if that's canon now. We don't know if that really counts towards the story. But there's a suggestion that Maximus had saved Lucilla as a child um, from drowning. And that's why there's this long family relationship between them all and maybe how he rose to the the highest ranks in the empire as as a general.
1: I find this particular case, Gladiator, as a masterclass in... Writing, if, if you look at the writer's unit, you've got three screenwriters here, and then of course you have the additional elements that are suggested, and that's Russell Crowe's contribution, uh, Ridley Scott, the editor's, you know, all those additional elements that come into the final movie. But if you just look at these two screenplays, which we have, and then the finished film, it's amazing to see that the first draft is clearly, there's a first draft of a movie. There's the first draft of my screenplay. And then to see how that transforms into the second draft. And it's like, okay, now we can really take a value of what is there in the foundation. And then now making it a richer character to finally finding that core, the heart of the film that's actually filmed. And and of course, is the one that we celebrate.
2: Yeah, and all that stuff between Lucilla and Maximus, then it's great material for the actors, for their backstory. So then they can act and bring so much more weight to those scenes that as. The audience, we're not knowing the specifics of that energy between them, but we feel it, and it always adds to the to the scenes. I feel.
1: I agree with you, and that's so I think it's it's wonderful when you realize how much, and again, just even jumping from that first draft to the finished film, where there's a lot of a, a lot of dialogue that is just direct exposition on the nose. Let's tell everything about the, mm-hmm. the reality of this setting all of the politics I mean, everything, there's the research is being directed to us. And then finally just saying, you know what, you can just strip all that out and really let the subtext of the characters come out. It's, it's wonderful for the actors. They just, they prefer it because they have those moments. Of course. Yeah. And it's, it's more, I think it's more significant for the audience because now we're more active in the storytelling. We're figuring things out.
2: Yeah. And I think at the end of the day, you know, you have this whole hero's journey, but it's the uh, characters that we are experiencing this story through. So the more less exposition, the less we have to explain the plot or the less we have to hear about it and experience it through the characters. I think that's what makes great screenwriting is where we are them and we feel for them. Yeah. And I guess we can kind of break down a little bit of the character arc. And you have with limited awareness as sort of the first status quo.
1: What I like to do, what I love to be able to do with my with, with my screenwriters is to give them the overall cycle that's presented in the hero's journey, which is the idea that a hero is separated from or some way has to depart the, the ordinary world. And they're then tasked with some kind of a journey that's going to be important, significant for them. That limited awareness is they may not be fully aware of what it is that they have to do or that they may not know they have the tools in order to address whatever that that task might be, but whatever the stakes are, those stakes are elevated to the point where they have to now cross into whatever the special world's going to be that's going to define the character now addressing whatever that goal is or that want is of the problem that has to be solved. And then switching it just to kind of give you the overview. So we're going into the descent into the special world or as Campbell initially had designed it as this initiation. So we are separated from our, our, our ordinary world. We're then descending into a special world. We find out what's so special about it. We then learn from it. We're then initiated and, and then from that, we learn those tasks to then come back to, or at least the stakes are elevated, to force us to come back to our community and, with it, share in what those lessons are that we learned. And it's usually going to be then, going into our you know dramatic structure here, is our climax moment, which is the final test, whether or not they've actually learned what they've and can, can show what they've learned in the, in the course of this journey. So going back to Maximus and this fascinating first act, and we're now looking at it just from the standpoint of the movie itself. Maximus is first, he's celebrated as a general, and he is the cream of the crop in terms of the warrior that's representing then Rome's conquest, but he's now getting a pushback from from Marcus Aurelius, who's, because he's facing death, um, which I think is an interesting transformation already from the first draft into the second draft is we have got a lot more urgency with Commodus now addressing, oh, my dad's dying and I'm hoping he's going to finally give all the power over to me. That's already now going through those revisions of the screenplays. But this now really challenges Maximus because Maximus as a warrior said, we've sacrificed lives. We've got bloodied men that have now fought for Rome. How can you now come to me and say, I question what Rome is?
0: I think the most telling line of dialogue in the first act is when Maximus says to Marcus Aurelius, there is no one left to fight. And Marcus Aurelius replies, there is always someone left to fight
1: in this version which is the Logan version and then the, the movie is we get Marcus Aurelius who says i've now we we have been fighting for 20 years of which i think he says there's only been 4 years of peace within that mm-hmm. and now i can finally move on but he's questioning how are people going to speak of me after I pass, so the idea of voices and whispers, which become now an important motif, because then we can think of it in a larger scale, and that's the Colosseum. Is if you can get the applause of the of, of the audience, then you're going to win them over, and you want to win the crowd. So these, it's what are people saying? What's the voice in this case of the whispers, which are some wonderful whispers that are now shared between um, Marcus Aurelius and 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 Maximus, uh, especially with the revelation of Maximus saying, I just want to go home.
0: Yeah, I I think the point I was trying to make is just the sense that Maximus and Marcus Aurelius essentially feel that with this campaign over, on the surface, there are no more battles to be fought. But of course, there will always be internal enemies that they need to be careful of. And the most dangerous internal enemy is the emperor's own son, Commodus. Yes. That's one of the forces that's driving the momentum of ending the ordinary world for them is the fact that there's a new evil approaching there's a new enemy out there and it's all linked in ab- above the characters themselves as individuals it's linked into this idea of quite uh forward thinking ideas that probably don't entirely fit in with Rome as a as a historical concept but ideas of republican democracy against tyranny which obviously resonates very well with a modern American audience. It's a country founded on the idea of getting rid of kings and emperors and and having a democracy. So all of this makes a lot of sense to us. Whereas in historical Rome, I don't believe the emperors even necessarily passed their line of succession to their children just by default, or they, they could adopt just anyone into their family. There were many different kind of concepts of familial relations, but we we don't need to know that because that's not what gladiators is about it's all about very clear big concept ideas and then putting that into those individuals to represent them
1: but it's important with this particular film because of the theme family because he is now making a decision. It's, it, I mean, it's a fascinating observation you made, and that is that, yeah, the, the bigger this is, the danger we have, which is now within family and Commodus. And so Marcus Aurelius already knows that, and he's trying to set Maximus up for his next his next challenge. So, are you ready for your duty? You've now been the hero on the field, and you have our love, you have my love as a father. Can you now do the next thing? And that is be the protector of Rome and be able to now deliver the power back to the people. And he knows that that's going to be not what Commodus wants. And that's going to be dangerous.
0: Is Maximus refusing that duty the archetypal refusal of the call stage?
1: You can see it as a refusal of the call. Yeah, I mean, he does. And it's an interesting thing where there is no answer fully because uh, Marcus Aurelius says essentially sleep on it. And I hope to have the right answer in the morning. And of course, the, the answer that happens in the morning is now another refusal of the call. And that is that Marcus Aurelius is murdered by his, his son, which is also an interesting thing because we don't see that in the scripts. Yeah. We see it on screen in a beautiful scene. But in the in the scripts, they both chose to put this as off screen. The actual death, the murder of the father has been left off screen.
0: Yeah, it's, it's implied And Mm -hmm. it's almost shocking just how iconic of a scene that is in in terms of the final version of Gladiator that it's actually very important that we do see that Commodus murders Marcus Aurelius and doesn't leave this to the audience's imagination or to be inferred. The actual act of seeing him smother an elderly man basically In a converse of a save the cat moment, it's a shoot the dog moment. From this point on, we're certain that Commodus is a villain to be defeated.
1: But he's got such again. We're going back to the to the complexity of his character because mm-hmm. you really feel for the guy at the beginning of the scene.
2: Yeah, no, I mean it's um, you're not condoning what he's doing, but you to a certain degree you understand where he's coming from, and I think that's what makes him so compelling that you can't just write him off as like a complete villain uh i think so going into the increased awareness reluctant to change so Mm -hmm. this is all kind of happening at this stage and then there is overcoming reluctance so i'm just curious as to what you think that moment is for for maximus when he finally makes a conscious step forward in that cycle that you have for for character
1: what i love to do is be able to say here are the tools we have and that the tools can be repeated. So in Maximus's character arc, He's actually, I mean, he goes through a couple of refusals of the call because of that. the, the call gets elevated. And with it, he's going to have a, a limited awareness and, again, a limited awareness. And then an awakened awareness is going to force him. So, as an example, he's, he's told um, by Marcus Aurelius, I want you to do this. And he says, I don't think I can do that. I'm not the person in power. You need to have someone else who can do that. So, he's reluctant. And he's not really aware of the larger power at stake even though he gets the warning from Marcus Aurelius that, that Commodus is going to be a challenge then when he awakens and he's he's awakened to find out that the, that the emperor has been murdered, has been killed he believes he's been murdered that he refuses the hand of Commodus and walks out on him And so that's now a, I now have that awareness of what I'm going to do, but only by doing that he's now, he's now, it's a death sentence to him because now Commodus sees him as a threat and it's going to have him murdered. So that's going to now force him into, okay, fine, I now have to fight, but also he realizes that his family's in danger. So now we're getting back into the importance of family, which is now going to redirect his goal, which is, I want to go back to home. I'm not sure if I want to follow what's what's important for Rome, but instead it's about life and limb and family, only to find out that family's been sacrificed. So now that is, we're now pushing him into another, a whole new area of transformation and a whole new task that's involved, because when he finds himself now being sold off as part of a gladiator school, he now, now has to either let himself die, essentially as he doesn't want to fight, and he refuses that, again, we get a refusal of the call only to then realize the stakes involved that are going to force him to show his real skills. And with it, he's now going to go on to a new task, which is, can he survive his trial by gladiator, if you will, by arena? And, and with that's it, the
2: special world.
1: Yeah, he's now in the special world. He's in a special world where he has, where he has no family because his fa- his mentor father has been murdered and his family's been been massacred. And at that point, he still wants to, although it's reluctance, he still wants to go home. That's that kind of that suppressed value. And the, again, by, by home, it's now being translated as, uh, I'd rather die.
0: And he accepts that identity because he refuses to use his name anymore. He refers to himself only as Gladiator. Uh, one of the additional rewrites that I love that came in after that second draft is the inclusion of the SPQR tattoo on his shoulder which I think very visually sums up what was often inferred in the earlier versions, whereby you could just tell he's a soldier, he's got scars. Proximo has to infer that he was a soldier of some kind, but having this mark of the Legion that he's then trying to Mm -hmm. remove from his body, which Juba says, won't that anger your gods? To which he, he just smirks, of course. So I think that's also showing his somewhat... Acceptance of the fact he's now in this new this
1: new path. The theme of identity, I think, is also important. We got families being an important theme, and we got identity being an important theme. Identity being he's the general, he doesn't see himself as a politician, as a, and then he needs to just he wants to be a farmer again. That's taken away from him. Now he's going to be this masked Spaniard gladiator, and then the really a beautiful moment, which happens in the midpoint of the movie. So the midpoint. In the hero's journey, is often a what we would describe as a supreme ordeal, which also is important for the character arc because usually it's something that's discovered that's going to finally force them to rework what their perhaps their their flaws might have been and redefine how they're going to best address the second half of the movie, and so um, that that midpoint is when he is able to, and this is the Battle of Carthage in the Colosseum, where he now, and this is actually Again, seen in the movie, but it's not seen in any of these. It's actually suggested. Um, Logan actually puts it into uh, the the description in um, in in his draft. Um, so it's 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 actually the foundation is set there. But we're getting now the the definite dialogue of Maximus, who's now going to direct the gladiators as being his army again to fight and successfully win in the in the Colosseum. But by doing that, of course, he's going to impress because. We've now changed history because they were supposed to have failed. So Commodus wants to see Spaniard. And it's the revelation. We get that wonderful revelation. Uh, he takes off the mask and he, and he claims who he is. And then now, now that just sets everything in motion because he's there to get revenge um, and face Commodus. And this is the time when Commodus realizes he should have been dead.
0: One thing I'd like to go back to before we get into the middle of the film as well, is just about the concept of the archetype of the mentor. Because I feel just just inferring from watching it and not not necessarily analyzing films myself, always through the lens of the hero's journey, but it seems to me there's two mentors in the film. There's Marcus Aurelius originally is the first mentor and dies or is sacrificed. And then you have Proximo steps up to take the role of the mentor for the the next two thirds of the film would would you agree with i agree that's that. really
1: yeah i think it's really good and proximus a wonderful mentor in that regard and we, of course we learn more as we're you know realizing his, his his history as he's he's feeling more comfortable and he's training i guess training really finding his gladiator his true his true successor in a way in maximus
0: well what is the role of the mentor essentially in the in
1: in this approach? Yeah, the archetypes, I like to look at the archetypes as essentially functions that happen in certain points in time so that a character can actually serve many functions. They could at the time be a hero and then also be a mentor at a moment, at a different moment in the, in the movie. Or they could be a a threshold guardian, which is one that's going to prevent you from going into the next realm because they're not, they want you to, to kind of step it up and show us that you're worthy of passing. Um, But the mentor is one that's going to usually guide the hero in some way. It's either giving them insight or it could be giving them some kind of tool that they're going to use. So it could be Proxima giving him the sword that he uses or Marcus Aurelius in terms of what, I mean, even just letting Maximus reveal his longing for what is important for him and that's describing his farm and the richness of the soil and his and his family that that's a gu- kind of helping the hero kind of guide them in some way in terms of what they need to, to do
2: yeah I think what's interesting about Proximo is that he's almost a reluctant mentor because he's kind of giving him the sword and Marcus Aurelius kind of sets him off on a destiny, a more sort of spiritual quest and Proximo's more of the facilitator to that because he's not trying to send him off on his destiny to kill the emperor. Mm -hmm. He just wants the best gladiator that he can. Mm -hmm. So in a way, he kind of strips him to his pure potential so that in order for him to go and fulfill the destiny of the first mentor, what I feel. So in a way, they kind of facilitate different things inside Maximus.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because often um, I'll describe to my screenwriters the importance of a usually an action story and then there's an emotion story. There's usually a physical journey that they're after and then there's an emotional journey that they're after. And so the physical journey for him is he's forced into becoming a gladiator. And so Proximo is going to be the one that's going to tell him You need to win the applause. You need to win. And he's going to teach him those and guide him in that regard. Whereas Marcus Aurelius is teaching him now the value of Rome. What is the dream of Rome? This is what I want you to do. I want you to bring that voice back to the people.
2: And I feel Duba to an extent is not necessarily a mentor, but he's almost like this sort of ally i don't know Mm -hmm. what
1: you would consider his um yeah some people would describe him as a sidekick yeah yeah (laughs) But but it's important i mean, I think in a way he is kind of a mentor in a way in terms of just that it's a subplot about family about the importance of family it's also
0: partly because of oliver reed's unfortunate death during the filming that juba ended up taking on a couple of the later scenes that were initially written to have proximo uh such as burying Maximus's ancestors in the ground after he had died in the arena. Mm -hmm. So that was something that was just a matter of reality that they had to, they had to come up with an alternative solution. There was only, they did try and put Oliver Reed's image back into the film, even after his death with some clever cuts and, and camera work and a body double, but essentially they had lost one of their main characters. And so, yeah, Juba ended up taking on that third mentor role, almost just out of the practicalities of the situation.
1: Really good choice. Although, again, fascinating because the first draft, we had Juba dying in in the the midpoint. so so (laughs) We got promoted. Yeah, we don't get Juba. (laughs) Um, He becomes important. I mean, he's elevated with with Logan's revision. And the moment when he dies in, which is, again, I think the Battle of Carthage um, in In the original script in franzoni's draft and then in logan's draft he's actually there to push maximus to actually fight as a gladiator he sees that at stake this is actually not the carthage battle it's the one prior to that when they're actually chained together and it's all right yeah yeah
2: um also just kind of to involve the other elements of screenwriting Uh, we've been talking about plot and character and to just bring we've also been talking about themes so family being one And also to bring in dialogue into the mix a little bit, what I find really interesting about Gladiator is that it doesn't have the most sophisticated dialogue, but it's told in such a Shakespearean sort of very genuine and honest emotion that it kind of just elevates, I think, the like it could be Shakespeare just from the dialogue itself.
0: This dialogue would be so cheesy if the actors hadn't delivered it yeah. so well. That's the thing. And so there there is a sense in in Gladiator that <laughs> this could this could have been a train wreck if it wasn't done correctly. But dialogue-wise, there there are some things that really, really stand out. I do think the speech, for example, that Maximus gives Commodus with context, with having seen all of the ordeals that he's been through and then delivering those lines of husband to a murdered wife, father to a murdered son, and I will have my vengeance. Mm-hmm. These these lines really do resonate and became very iconic after the film. I think everyone who's seen it remembers course, those yeah.
2: those words. That's the that's the main one.
1: Well, it's also it's interesting too, and I don't know um, who actually wrote it and when it was brought in, but um, in the opening battle sequence when Maximus actually rallies his troops um, for the fight, that's not. It's not in either of the drafts. It's actually given to Marcus Aurelius in the first draft, the Franzoni draft. And um, and it just doesn't – because we know – after that point it's like he disappears and then we find out he's actually ill and he's sick. So it's like, oh, okay. All right. So um, – and it works beautifully in the film. He's going to rally. We've got our battle cry, um, and, and Maximus stands up to that. But there's also the interesting change in dialogue that happens. It's just this in that first battle sequence when we have, I think it's Quintus that observes, "Won't they ever? You know, won't they ever accept that they've been conquered?" And um, and we don't have in the, in the in the Logan draft that's there, but we don't have any kind of response. And in the movie, we get Maximus responding with "You would I," which is just you know, very important.
0: Yeah. It- really brings back the the key themes, again, of those enemies that are within the the sense that no one knows their destinies. The final revisions that go into the film that transcend the singular lives of the characters and suggest that there is some sort of afterlife, that there is some sort of destiny for people, and doesn't really worry about what might be the Roman pagan ideology or the, I, I think there's a sense in a lot of the earlier stuff that Maximus might have been Christian in some way. And, you know, but going back to those parallels of thinking of Christians being thrown to the lions in the Colosseum and stuff, and all of that is just stripped away. And we just get these very modern characters, I think, but also have this strong faith in something, in some greater good, some greater power to, to fight for which might just be the, the sense of justice.
1: Well, and, it, and it's made a couple of things. One of them is that I feel that we see a lot of those moments that are changed and really transformative for the characters are really character moments. They really make those moments stand out, and it's usually our, our leading characters. So you have to wonder what the actors are now bringing into this in that revision process. Um, it's giving them those clear moments, and as a writer... You should be thinking about that, too. I mean, it's something where we're seeing that play out by just looking at these drafts and seeing how it's actually, and it's like, oh, yeah, when I'm going through revision, I can be thinking about that as well. I can be satisfied with a foundation that's laid in my first draft, which Franzoni does, to then see what it is I'm trying to say. And then realizing, yeah, I'm now maybe saying too much on the nose. I can now strip stuff away so I can take away a lot of that you know, the, the dialogue that wouldn't ring true. It'd be very difficult, yeah. but getting into the heart of the story. I also think um, in so small moments,
2: I think talking about Maximus's faith and character, he tends to grab the earth. He, he's always grabbing either the fields, the, the dirt. He has these small spiritual moments that are seemingly subtle, but I think um, subconsciously it lets the audience know that this is a a person of depth that believes in something without saying it without telling us what his religion really is. And I think as a writer, you want to incorporate that when you're writing, I think giving small moments to your characters is so important because then visually, because it is a visual medium, it speaks volumes, I think, to an audience.
1: Yeah. And again, one of those that's not documented in the screenplay. The picking up the dirt. And you gotta think, well, I mean, is it because he's a farmer? And then how'd that come? I mean, where where did that come from? Was it was it a director giving him or is it a, you know, was it Russell Crowe discovering it, or was it in that final draft that I actually went into production? But I, I agree with you, it's those important motifs and the visuals clues that become so significant.
0: I think we've covered with archetypes the majority of the characters. So Maximus is a hero, Commodus as the shadow or villain. Could we take a look at Lucilla and maybe see which archetype roles she takes uh, throughout the course of the story?
1: Yeah, in in romance... We often see, a, uh, you know, the, the shapeshifter, this, because we, we, we protect ourselves. We, you know, if we, if we go into just romance, or romantic comedy, we often, we all are very protective of our hearts um, in what I'd argue is one, really one of the most dangerous journeys as humans we go on. And that's the journey of the heart, which is because we're, you know, literally we're going to just rip open our chest and expose ourselves. And the question is whether or not we're going to be accepted. So the, the shapeshifter is one that we don't know really what they're after. They're after something. They're saying one thing, but they might be hiding the ulterior motives. You could see it in extreme in genres like the film noir, in which we get that femme fatale character. And we're seeing it here with, with Lucilla. When she sees Maximus for the first time after he's, she's been, she just realizes he's still alive, he's expecting her to come in and kill him. Because he even says, you know, I was expecting assassins. I wasn't expecting you to be the one. Um, and so it's like, I don't trust you. I don't know if I can fully trust you. And so she's got to now earn that, that trust. But she also, I think, is channeling the mentor. Mm-hmm. She's channeling father. Marcus Aurelius had said, I wish you had born a a boy, that you were a son. He knows that she would be a better emperor. Yeah, she has, and she
0: also responds to him that she would have listened to him. She would have become whoever he needed her to be, which is exactly what Commodus refuses to do because of his ambition and his vanity and his narcissism. Uh, With Lucilla, one point that is interesting as well is that even though she is a shapeshifter, it also brings into focus the fact of why she needs to be that way is because of the insecurity in which she lives as a woman in the highest court in the land she's constantly surrounded by all of this plotting enemies within her own brother is very abusive towards her towards the end you know he's even threatening the conditions for her to and for her son to go on living are going to be entirely dependent on his whims and whether or not he's satisfied with her. So the fact that she turns into a character who has to shift shape, essentially, is a reflection of her will to survive and try and figure out a way to protect herself and and her son, who is her. Her main priority.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the stakes are so high for her because she knows that Lucius is is threatened. Yeah, and I think for for the audience, I think she does
2: go through a shape shifting early in the film because when we first meet her, she's very close to Commodus, and I don't remember what my experience was first watching it, but I imagine I myself probably didn't know if she was truly on Commodus' side or she was later on. We reveal she's just pretending, but at the beginning, she does go through a shift where. We, the audience, don't know exactly where her loyalties lie and what she's going
1: through. Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely.
0: And there's another archetype here that we haven't covered. Would you mind explaining threshold guardians?
1: Yeah, I mean, again, threshold guardians are usually hanging out (laughs) in those thresholds of the story. So it's like the threshold going into the special world. Something will happen that's going to transform our character's world that spins the story into a new direction, which is usually these threshold moments. So it's usually at the end of Act 1 or at the end of Act 2. And it's the end of Act 1, it's going to be the stakes have been elevated that spins the story around that's going to now force them to go into whatever that special world or at least accept the challenge. And there might be then characters at these thresholds That are going to be testing them to see whether or not they're worthy of passing and crossing that threshold. So it's like a a, a test, if you will. We also will see this often at that midpoint of the movie, which is again a threshold moment usually. So threshold guardians, it's the soldiers that are going to kill Maximus. They're going to assassinate him when when Commodus says to kill Maximus at the end of Act One. So that's the beginning of our crossing of threshold when he survives that attempt to assassinate him. And then now he's got to race back to save his family. In essence, that time before his his, his family's massacred, those soldiers are also part of that threshold guardian element. And of course he fails. And then it's now he's going to go through another transformation, a literal physical transformation. That is, uh, with with Juba giving him the medicine that's going to help him heal and survive. With that, he's able to kind of overcome his wounds, which again could be seen as a threshold guardian. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a character. It could be an environment. It could be a physical structure. It could be an animal. It could be, you know. Should we talk about Commodus
0: as a character and this shadow concept I I think that's an interesting distinction to make, just in the sense that I think when someone says hero, Mm -hmm. we think of the counterpart as villain. That is not broken down, at least in the way that it's written out in. In your book, you have alternative archetypes, and shadow is probably the closest one to what Commodus represents.
1: Yeah, you get that opposition, which is important. Hero may be representing light, if you will, and shadow being the the suppressed. So you get a heroic character is going to be elevated. And that's again, that's uh, to be clear is that a hero doesn't necessarily begin as a hero. They have to go through a journey in order to now do heroic things. And so if you look at the archetypes more as actions that a mentor is at a moment in the movie serving as a mentor, when they're guiding a character and they're giving them some kind of gift that's going to help them on the journey, or they're able to tell them about what they can be foreseeing because they've already lived that, that journey. Proximo is an example. the, Shadow is one that's out there to destroy what is the light, keep it suppressed, keep it in dark. And so, yeah, there are moments, and that's why Commodus as a character is quite fascinating. That there's complexity in the character. He's out there for the love of Rome, his people, but he's believing it's being done through destruction and bringing back the games. And so there's that darkness or the shadow that's often our suppressed desires, those things that we, I guess, acknowledge, but we often don't follow because it's not in our our values. So it's it's different than what Marcus uh, Aurelius is valuing as the truth of Rome. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. I think it's interesting how you wrote your description of the shadow. I believe you used the term. it it could also be our rejected qualities. Mm -hmm. And so Commodus, I think, is certainly a good case for any psychologist to to take a stab at. Um, But some of the qualities, I think, that are rejected qualities that are very present in him are tyranny, Mm -hmm. um, incest, his incestuous attitude towards his sister, vanity, narcissism, imperiousness, ambition, and arrogance. These are all things that Marcus Aurelius seems to sense about Commodus uh, uh, underlying. in, And it's the, the argument they have with each other when Marcus Aurelius had written to him and listed the four great virtues and Commodus realized he had none of them. And he tries to find in those rejected qualities some um, some that he thinks he can be proud of. Ambition is one. He says that, well, it can drive you to excel. He's trying to find ways to mm-hmm. convince his father of his, his worth, but... There's a sense of delusion there, I think, that is this unwillingness because of the narcissism, because of the belief that he, above all, needs to become emperor to ensure the future of Rome, that that leads to a certain level of blindness to the suffering of others
2: around him. I think also what came was his lack of self-worth, I think, and trying to fill that with very superficial things. And because of his power, he tries to fill that void with... You know, wanting to be emperor, wanting to feel powerful, wanting to have the respect of his men. And he's on very shaky ground because he doesn't have that that value for himself, I think. Lack of maybe self-love and his dad didn't give him any. He's a very fearful person and I think fearful people in positions of power tend to be the most dangerous because they're identifying their strengths in in something so external like the respect of their men the need for validation from his father the the love that he wants from his sister so he's looking for this love everywhere except within himself and i think that's the complete opposite of maximus who just exudes this sort of he knows who he is he knows where his heart is he knows himself so well and i think it's that kind of mirror well not mirror but like complete opposites of each other that i think that's why it's such a fascinating dance between the two characters.
1: Yeah. Commodus is fighting for love. He wants that love. He wants to try and get love. And as you said, Maximus doesn't need that. He's already has that love. But it's been taken from him, and now he's got to try and reclaim it again in some way.
0: One thing I noticed in the second draft, we actually start out following Commodus, and then we see that he's late to the battle. Mm-hmm. And again, going back to the expositional dialogue that you that you mentioned before, it's there's too much of this sense of, okay, we have to go and see Commodus struggle to catch up and, and miss the battle. But when you do it visually in film, it makes so much more sense to have this huge set piece. All the trees are on fire. Everyone's being slashed to pieces. And mm-hmm. everyone who survives is barely just making it out alive. And then you have Commodus arrive and just strut around in this brand new suit of armor, acting as if he was in some way involved in the conquest. And he he does this again after Marcus Aurelius' death. He returns to Rome as a conquering hero. And all of the senators are grumbling about it. They've had to pay people to go and stand out in the streets because no one genuinely wants to go and because he hasn't done anything. And there's that sense with Commodus always of him trying to assume power that he hasn't yet earned. Even in the, the Colosseum, he will stab Maximus in the back before their fight. He won't fight him and trust himself to beat Maximus. He, he wants the outcome to be predetermined.
2: And I think, you know, so he also goes through that arc where he gets worse and worse. And he feels like the, the final straw is um, his sister betraying him and really feeling that betrayal i think that just kind of pushes him to the to the end of his arc there so i think it's i think it's great because i think most films don't really have the shadow figure have so much screen time like Commodus does mm-hmm. and i think what joaquin phoenix did to the role he just kind of gave it a had a dimension i feel than what was on page
1: and it kind of goes back to an observation you had about the the opposition of Maximus versus, uh, or the mirror, I guess, of Maximus versus Commodus as a character arc and the importance of what the journey will do for the characters, and that's for both these characters, that once they go into that special world and those forces at work at the special world, they really push against the character and really test them, force them to get into their core. So the journey, I mean, once they get into the special world, the forces of the special world will actually push against the character and really test them to find out what their core is. And what will happen is that the character will often fall in their old ways. It's, you know, you solve a problem, you kind of use your old techniques to try and solve the problem. But then you realize, no, maybe those techniques aren't going to work. I have to find new techniques. So it's going to reveal the deeper skills set. Um, it's going to really push Maximus in terms of his skill set and his values of actually fighting, standing up and fighting for Rome, and that's going to be part of his transformation that happens. Whereas in the special world for Commodus, is those forces are actually going to now push him his values and actually even mm, subvert some of those, the narcissism to the point where before it was just love. Now it's, I really want to have love with my sister. I really want to have that threat to who may be the heir and that's the nephew that it pushes them and he pushes him in a a more of a dark, demented way, if you will.
0: As you were saying that, I was just thinking when we talk about character, because we're writers, we think of character, Maximus, Commodus. These are the names on the page. And then there's that other sense of the word character. It is how we use the word character to mean how you react to pressure, mm-hmm. who you are when when all the pressure is on, what are those resources that you can call on? That is also your character. And I think that ties into what you're saying and something to think about when we're writing is what is this person under the maximal point of pressure? What are, what are they like when all is lost? Mm-hmm. What do they choose to do? And that tells you everything about them in, in a sense. So with Maximus, we see that he is able to withstand pain, pain and suffering in the name of a, a greater cause. Even if that cause is vengeance, and it's, it's done with this belief that it's going to balance out the world again, and that his life does not need to end in this meaningless fashion. Just dying in, in a pit in Zucobar, the remote Moroccan town, he's able to, to sit through the pain and wait and bide his time and get his revenge.
2: He's essentially reborn. You know, he goes through preparing for big change, which is going up against the emperor, and attempting the big change so you know there's a sense of rebirth that he goes through where now he's been stripped physically and emotionally but mostly physically to the point of now he has nothing left i guess and in that sense there's that surrender i think where there's a moment where there's that shift i think in a character where you hit the bottom
1: and then there's no way but up exactly Yeah, it's that lowest of the low moment Mm -hmm. that we talk about often in narrative structure for the screenplay. It's usually at the end, that crisis moment at the end of act two. But what's fascinating, I find it, every act, and I I, I like to describe the acts of a screenplay in quadrants. There's actually four portions. So you get act one and then you just split act two into two. Mm -hmm. And then you'll have act three but that at each of these quadrants you start building the stakes and the characters to, you know up against whatever those obstacles are and it usually forces them to some point where they're going to f- cross into the next act arena that usually is a rebirth that maximus you could argue he goes through a rebirth when he's uh, d- literally dying and juba resurrects him. Now he's got to survive in, in gladiator school. Then it, with the Battle of Carthage, in which they are supposed to die, there's a rebirth, but now he's reborn as as a as general leading his gladiators. He's earned their respect now as his new family. But he's also had to reveal himself to to commodus. So that now becomes a rede- redefinition of his identity. He's now no longer Spaniard of, of the first half of Act Two. He's now Maximus, determined to get revenge. And then he's going to go through a final rebirth when he's we're hoping he's going to escape in order to bring the armies to come in. But that gets there's a reversal, wonderful reversal that happens in the movie. That now it's about doing the right thing for for Rome and getting his his revenge.
2: You have two kind of cycles here. You have the hero's journey model, and then you have the character arc. Mm-hmm. How would you say the the main differences between the two?
1: I mean, the hero's journey, as it's as as I lay it out here, which is also with what how it's positioned with Chris Vogler's work, which again goes back to Joseph Campbell's work, a distillation of it. It's not all the stages that Joseph Campbell proposes, but those are more of the story points. These story arc archetypal narrative archetypes, in other words, these events that actually happen recurring in stories. So we have a call to adventure, we have a reversal of the call, we have a crossing of the threshold. Um, we have these moments in Act 2 that are, um, it's usually rising action, but it's usually, um, it, it can be defined in the hero's journey as moments in which we're figuring out who are our allies, who are our enemies, how are we are figuring out what's so special about the special world. So Maximus has to learn how to be a gladiator. So he's going to go through those tests that are going to finally push him through that. Then we get a supreme ordeal, which again is that midpoint taste of death, the resurrection usually that's going to lead to some kind of reward that's that's awakened at that point or earned. And then that's going to then spend, uh, send them into a road back moment, which again is a stage, a narrative stage, which it would be, I like to associate it with the lowest of the low or the act two crisis. That crisis will then spin us into our act three, So that's the recommitment to finally, what is it we learned? How am I going to show that? So it's the obligatory scene of usually the protagonist facing the antagonist, or it's going to be Maximus facing Commodus, and with it, what's going to come from that? Now, the character arc is how that character is actually going through transformation. So often, I see characters often as falling in lockstep with what their usual traits are, and then being told in some way that they need to change and whether or not they're going to accept that change. And then how, how is that change then play out? And it's usually done through what characters are doing. So they're showing us, in fact, that they've changed.
0: Mm. Uh, so for writers, the hero's journey is essentially the the overall structure of the screenplay as as the entirety of the work is, essentially.
1: Yes, but I have to put a major disclaimer on it. The way that I like to approach it is that this isn't a paint-by-number storytelling. Absolutely, yeah. It's well, not that I have to do stage one. I set my ordinary world up. Now it's time for my call to adventure. Oops! I got to put in a call to adventure or a refusal to call. It's you need to you need to trust the story you're trying to tell, but understand the importance of these stages, not only in terms of effective storytelling, but also of how it actually impacts your audience.
0: It's almost a sense of, if you look at something you're writing, and there's a part of it that's not quite working, you might want to look at it through a lens like this and think, is it because a key element is missing here? Am I missing something that is just what audience expectations, thousands of years of human storytelling has Dictated that we're going to expect at the next stage, and that doesn't mean you can't reverse it. It doesn't mean you can't turn it on its head. You can't try and do something original, but knowing that those rules and structures are going to be in many people's minds as they're watching something, you're you're playing this game of reward and originality at the same time when you're trying to write something new and creative.
1: Absolutely, yeah, no, I agree with you. Yeah,
2: and I think um the story is always interesting when. The characters are reacting when there's something happening with them and i think uh, for gladiator for example i used to kind of feel that maximus was sort of a passive character in a sense because i felt well he starts off really good and he ends really good so i always felt like there wasn't that much of a arc for him but watching it this last time i feel like it's more about accepting a greater destiny than he had sort of thought about himself and resisting that the whole time. And while his is more of a, kind of like a longer burnout to get to that point, and in between that, we're being sort of entertained by Commodus, who is constantly reacting, constantly something happening with him. So I think that's why the film really works as well, It's like you have two different sort of emotional journeys as well. And then we get the big payoff with Maximus at the end, and it feels very well-earned because you did spend the entire film with him rejecting his greater destiny and then finally completing that. Yeah.
1: What I love is seeing how that's transformed in the final film because it isn't there in the, in the drafts that we've, we've explored here.
0: One interesting point right in the middle as we're getting towards the end now is maybe it's just a bit later than the middle, but it's when Maximus decides to show mercy in response to Commodus's order to kill his competitor, which was Tigris of Gaul, the the gladiator who has tigers with him and has returned from retirement to create this this great battle of the two greatest warriors, Maximus, the current champion and and him as the kind of returning legacy champion. And Maximus chooses to spare his life. And he becomes known as Maximus the Merciful, and it does link into what Proximo had been telling him about winning over the crowd. But I just wanted to think about that, maybe as a point in where where does that fall in terms of character arc in terms of in terms of transformation of character? Is that a key moment?
1: I think it. Me, mean, I think it's a significant moment for him for for Maximus as a character. The idea that we're now going to demonstrate he's going to defy Commodus, and this is his way of showing defiance that. Uh, You can go ahead and do a thumbs up. It doesn't mean I'm going to actually kill. That I am going to be merciful. And with it, it actually, he gains, I think, more allegiance from his audience. Um, The crowds, they love it. That's why he becomes Maximus the Merciful, much to the distress of of Commodus. It elevates the stakes now for Commodus in terms of how am I going to get rid of this guy? How can I get rid of him in a way that's going to be accepted. This reminds me
0: of something that a lesson I learned when I was at university and I was, I was studying history. And I had a really great history professor who introduced the concept of agency to me in terms of looking at historical narratives and seeing these things from different perspectives, not just the writer of, of the source. And so looking at things like slavery and missions in, in colonial Mexico, for example, and we were looking at agency as this concept of what were the little things that people were doing to avoid having to do what they were being told by the new colonial rulers. Even if it was just taking much longer to do a task, these, these minor little rebellions that when people feel that they have nothing else, that they still will find something that they can do to try and assert their independence as people. And I think that really ties into what Maximus ends up having to do, because he really is property at this point. He has no choice other to, than to fight. Mm. He can be put to death at any moment. The, the emperor could send an assassin in and kill him. But through that defiance, he's almost challenging Commodus to say, you know that's not going to work. If you just kill me, you it's going to hurt Commodus's whole sense of self. Mm. And he actually then wants to fight him man to man. He wants to get to him, get get under his skin, and it works.
1: He needs to defeat him man to man. So that's why, he, of course, he stabs him in the back in order to do so. So it's got to make sure that he dies. Um
2: yeah. Yeah, and I think that's kind of the uh, attempting the big change in his character arc is he's kind of going for a bold statement. But what I find kind of fascinating about that scene is that he is being himself and it shows character, it shows who he really is.
1: But then also remember that soon, I believe right after that is when he he sees Cicero and he now emphasizes, I'm going to go back to uh, Lucilla and say, "I'll, I'll speak with the senator. So he's, he's now thinking about the value of Rome. So he's defied Commodus, and now he's also making that big change. And that's learning what had been tasked him initially, and that is do what's right for Rome.
2: And then the consequences start happening mm-hmm. right after that defiance. So I think that kind of starts sending the story into its sort of final showdown.
1: Yeah, the inevitable, here we're going to get to the end, and we're hoping it's going to work out in one beneficial way, and that is that I can... Maximus is saying, I can get my army to storm Rome and take it back. And we're hoping that that's going to happen. And it's fascinating that it actually happens in both of the drafts of the screenplay, mm-hmm. but it doesn't play out in the movie. So it's an interesting twist that they did.
0: I think that goes back to what I was suggesting earlier about structure is not something you have to follow, it's there and you should be aware of it. And by making that change and by not having Maximus return at the head of this army, but reducing it down to that very minimalist approach of just these two characters go head to head in this epic battle. The idea is one of them will survive, of course. Neither of them survive. Comparing that to the the second draft ending, where they, they fight underneath the catacombs, multiple people dying, Lucilla dies in the battle... Which then leads Maximus to to raise her son Lucius and on the farm himself. Th- this entire rewrite, I think, just completely changed and saved the film in a way and made it something really, really epic.
1: And I'm wondering whether or not that also was something that came. Purely from character, too, because it really elevates the importance of Commodus. That he, we realize now how smart he is. I mean that again. The moment now, and this is actually in the Logan draft too, is the moment when he talks about with with Lucius about reading reading the story and Anthony and Cleopatra and and the the subtextual message that's communicated to us, and that is Commodus is now telling his sister, "I know what you've done, and uh, there's danger here."
0: I think structurally, as we're talking about that resurrection that's meant to come towards the end of a hero's journey as well, there is a sense that the character needs to return in some way to what they had before, Mm -hmm. but improved and having gone through this journey. Mm -hmm. And that original ending of him returning to his farm and having got through this, it works structurally. But when you compare that to this sense of there is an afterlife and you can return to your family, I do believe this is the William Nicholson edition. He's, he's a playwright. He's someone who is very familiar with, with these kind of concepts. The sense of the resurrection is actually a, a death and rebirth in the afterlife for Maximus. That will be the final resurrection for him. And that is constantly explored through this motif of him walking through the field of wheat, returning to his his farm, which again has become very iconic because it's the scene that Gladiator opens with, and and then ties back into this nice circular idea of of storytelling that that in some way these these destinies are linked. The beginning is linked to the end.
2: Mm-hmm. And also, I think it just sort of it's a. Uh thematic resurrection too for the people of Rome I think that was his destiny was to enable this rebirth for an entire republic and I think it kind of just both those fates are sort of in one as well but what I I love about the ending too is that it kind of highlights the importance of character that that's what you care about that's why you're there is to see the experience of these characters that's how you're experiencing the stories through them and I think the writers and the actors probably came to their senses and realized that this was the best possible ending for, for these characters, and it totally worked. I can't imagine it being the other way. It would have been... I wonder how that would have looked like. It probably would have looked epic, but it wouldn't have had the emotional resonance, I think.
1: What, what, what I'm also finding when you're talking about the, the Rome and how Rome transforms and how that's actually reflected in the final moments, here we're seeing this arc of the stage in Roman history of gladiator fights and trying to earn the audience and the applause. And yet we finally end in the last battle and both of them fall. There's no one left standing and the audience is silent at that point. There's no applause. There's nothing. So it's that passage of now we can move on, which I find very, very powerful, very subtle in terms of its its conclusion in the story.
0: It feels to me that the original conception of Gladiator was more of an exploration of this moment in history. There are more explanations in the screenplay of what Rome is like, the poverty it's facing, the social issues. And then you're adding on to this, this sense that they're putting people to death as a spectacle and people go and watch this. And there's a sense of this being barbarism. And again, that, that just kind of it doesn't tie in too well with what actually the film Gladiator is trying to do. The arena is a place for Maximus to demonstrate himself as someone who's fighting these these battles, these tests, these ordeals over and over again. They're, they're places for him to demonstrate his worth and and to face these challenges that will then lead up to the final confrontation with Commodus
1: yeah it's it's interesting even going back to like the first draft and knowing the value that they were trying to Let's explore this arena. But it's also trying to make it so that we as in our own society can identify with this. And so is the elevation of the spectacle sport. They even have characters there that are dealing with product endorsements. Um, and that's all written out in that first draft. And of course, that's now stripped away. And we're stripping away all of that and, just, and now getting into just the core of the characters, which I feel helps elevate this film in terms of its power. And, and I think that, you know, reflecting on, well, what if they were to have shot it more towards these other endings and and I think it would have gone back into more of a genre that is the sword and sandal type genre that historical or not historical necessarily although they were pretty much kind of going off of the historical epics that that were being produced but of more of an adventure type journey. In other words, we're going to see adventure play out all the way through and of course our hero is going to survive we're going to see Hercules again we're going to see Maximus survive in the end and yet, no, maybe that's not the case here
2: which is why i feel i think it feels a bit shakespearean
1: yeah absolutely because you
2: know, that is its ending otherwise it would have felt more like i don't know something like epic and the sort of by the numbers traditional
0: this freedom to create a certain type of story contends with its historical origins
1: the first draft it's narcissus is maximus and that was done historically because there, the, the Commodus was actually murdered by, I, I can't remember if it was a slave or someone whose name was Narcissus. So they're going histo- he was Franzoni was going very much in terms of the history, in terms of trying to get that foundation. Mm-hmm. And then of course you get Maximus with, with Logan's script.
0: As someone who writes historical, almost everything I write ends up in some way getting into history if it's not outright historical good feedback that I've received is just never use that's the way it happened as an excuse. It doesn't work in terms of hammering out a story and making a story engaging. Now, that doesn't mean that everything should be like Gladiator. But when you consider the fact that most people had no idea who Marcus Aurelius and Commodus were before they watched this film, Mm -hmm. and the fact is that the things that we know about those two historical characters are reasonably minor in in terms of how that's going to affect our perception of rome they're not the most commodus in particular is not one of the most iconic emperors that people have heard of so does it really matter the extent to which they play around with these these historical characters i don't think so i think that it's quite clear this is a work of fiction mm-hmm. that People are not going to go away from this thinking, oh, and then Rome became a republic when Commodus died. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's all more of a, again, it's tying more into this idea of myth. This is more of a universal story. It's a, it's a mythological story. It's telling us some, some things about values, about the type of characters, where things will go if you have certain people in power, and what happens if the other people can stand up to them and prevent them from taking over, from being tyrants, from oppressing. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's more of an exploration of those themes as opposed to any real historical mm-hmm. facts or ideas. And even in the second draft, there's still heavy, heavy references to things like the the oppression of the Germanic tribes. And it just doesn't it doesn't need to be there. Mm-hmm. When when you watch that opening scene and this German comes out holding the severed head of a Roman centurion and and shouting in a language we can't understand. We get it. That's all we needed to know. We know that they are fighting on this frontier of what everyone in Rome considers civilization Mm -hmm. and everyone else is suddenly being brought violently into their their world of civilization, whether they like it or not.
1: Mm -hmm. I think that's also one of the reasons why Gladiator stands the test of time, because it's not about interesting, intriguing plot points, but it's about characters that and with at the bottom. The, the, the core of that is the values. What's, what's at value for them? So it's the value of family. It's the value of, of, of individual and what a person can do for in their final stage of their life. What is it that they're going to be remembered for? Marcus Aurelius questions that and then he's setting Maximus on doing that. And Maximus has to now do that. And of course, Commodus does it in his own way, his own demented way.
2: Yeah. And actually one thing that kind of jumped at me from the, your book is the preparation can be just as important as the thrills. And I think this film is excels at that because we don't have the final showdown between the two of them. It's more of a, it's been preparing us from the very beginning that these two are going to face off at one point. And we literally don't get that moment till the last 10 minutes of the film. So I think it's, it's a great sort of in how it's been planting those seeds and getting the final payoff, mm-hmm. which makes it even more sweeter that we waited an entire film to kind of get that moment. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you would constantly tell your students or uh, aspiring screenwriters, maybe writer's block, I think is a common sort of thing for, for a lot of writers. How, how would you, how do you overcome
1: writer's block and what do you recommend other people do it depends on where you are in the writer's block if you're in the middle of a project trying to write the project for me it's chunking it you know try and put it into little bite-sized things and i can tackle so if it's addressing i've got to try and write an entire screenplay i'm one that likes to plot it out for a screenplay i like to plot it out so i i will work towards an outline. And then from that, I'll chunk that outline into its scene and sequences. And then from that, well, let's just, let's just address that particular scene or that beat. And if I'm, if I'm dealing with writer's block at that moment, I'll trick myself by just, okay, well, what am I supposed to be doing with this scene? I'll just kind of write about what's my scene about. Mm. And by doing that, all of a sudden I'm beginning to start thinking about, well, this could happen and this could happen. And I'm beginning to to write it through. If it's trying to find story, I look, I use journaling. I try and go into and just think, okay, what are some of the important values to me? What are the you know, interesting observation I'm going through? So I'm at least going through some kind of dialogue and I'm not worrying about censoring, my, censoring myself about creating anything that needs to be of, of value outside of my own private journal.
2: I personally, I mean, I go through writer's blocks here and there, and but it's almost like I Sometimes get impatient with the 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 process. Sometimes where it's like, oh, it's not going as fast as I would want it to. I mean, it's steadily coming, finding certain beats. I think to define certain characters. That I think is where sometimes it's a little tricky because if you change this, and this other thing's gonna have to change, and then it's like we're working certain things. But that's interesting that you say that about because at the end of the day, it is about each scene is trying to tell you something. And it is, what is the heart of the scene? What is this? How are we moving forward, either in character or in story? But it has to move forward in some way. And I think identifying what the scene's about is a great place to start.
1: Yeah, I'm curious, you know, as a writer for yourself, do you feel like you could jump over a, a beat that's not working? Can you jump ahead? In other words, if you've got... If everything's working great up to act one, and all of a sudden it's like, "Oh, what's going to happen?" But I know it's going to happen at the midpoint. Can you jump ahead and start writing? Yeah, I to?
2: yeah, I can definitely, for sure. I can go to scene forty-nine and think, "Okay, I, I fixed that little part. Now I can go back to the beginning and fix this little part."
1: It's very much a puzzle thing for me. Because one thing that I can also, I also, I will either have my writers do this or I will I can suggest this when people are having that kind of an issue where they're, oh, I've got this hole in my screenplay that's just not making sense, mm-hmm. is I can jump to the part that is making sense and then think, okay, well, how did I get to that point? Mm-hmm. So just kind of back up maybe one beat. Okay, how did I get to that point? So you're kind of walking yourself back to perhaps that
2: yeah. kind of previous. And I always tend to have the ending sort of figured out. So I tend to work backwards a lot of the times like okay but how do i get there and it's very much like almost like rewinding in a way it tends
1: to work that way and it's fun because then you can just like okay i'm just gonna kind of a random rewind and not sure where it's gonna you know to be open to where wow i wasn't thinking of that one but you also want the characters to take you there mm-hmm. if, yes. it, if it's yeah. original yeah
0: Absolutely. If, if we do want to cycle this back into gladiator i do feel that a lot of the time we feel the characters are taking us where we need to go, and we don't. We don't feel that the senators conspiring have too much of a say over how Maximus is going to act in the arena or anything like that. You know, it, it feels like there's a sense of where everything is going comes from within each, each of these main. Let's say the main four are Maximus, Commodus, Lucilla, and Marcus Aurelius, replaced by Proximo a bit later. But aside from that, it's really driven by. Almost like Whiplash was—that there's this mm-hmm. antagonism between two people, mm-hmm. and that keeps you going. Mm-hmm. And this has—this is a three-hour-long film almost, and it's—it's it's based about the antagonism between two people who, basically, Marcus Aurelius claimed they were both his sons.
2: Almost. Yeah, it's almost like two brothers, kind of fighting it off and but you're right it is very character based and I think usually that's when I have the most breakthroughs is when I dial it back to what is the scene about but more importantly what how is it important for the character and the character's sort of development yeah at the end of the day that that's what you that's the
1: heart of it heart of it all well I think that's also the the takeaway the bigger takeaway lesson from again with gladiators being able to look at these stages of the writing and that, that's including a final revision, which is in fact our produced film, and seeing that, oh my gosh, the the changes have been on the level of character. It's not some, yeah, plot, plots, yeah, there's some changes in plot, but the, the those changes in plot are there because it's emphasizing the importance of what characters are doing what they need to get done.
0: Exactly. And when you are writing a historical piece, it's very easy to be swept along by that excuse of, well, that's how it happened. So my character needs to be there. My character needs to kill Commodus at the end. And the audience doesn't hear that. The audience thinks, I haven't seen five good reasons from this character to be willing to to murder the Emperor in front of everyone else. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Gladiator, by the end of Act One, you're pretty
1: are you sure that quite, you know the, it's the Maximus ha- deserves to go and <laughs> yeah it's to happen. go and do that, and I can't I can't wait for it to happen, yes. yeah, but yeah. yeah, so
0: maybe we could just do a few closing comments just to sum up as we usually do our our character themes dialogue, where we think the strengths are in Gladiator and where the weaknesses are and anything like that. I suppose character is a strong point because we've yes. just been talking about that. I think that each character represents, probably this was inspired by Marcus Aurelius and his list of virtues, but almost some of the characters do represent quite clearly. Maximus as this sense of justice. Marcus Aurelius, repentance, wisdom, philosophy, Lucilla, motherhood, protection, commodus as well, ambition, narcissism. They've been given these, mm. these virtues to embody and then you see how they play out together. So for me, that's that's the most enjoyable thing about Gladiator.
1: Also, just to, to to add, is Marcus Aurelius in terms of the the power of country, of of oh yes, there's a larger there is a larger good here that we're after.
0: Yeah, something that Commodus um, mistakes as well. Then I get to embody that. There there should be something above everyone, even the most tyrannical kings had this belief that there was something else above them that they had to serve that just wasn't tangibly there. And when that's missing, when you have a, a Napoleon or a Commodus, that's when it gets very, a, a Stalin or a Hitler, that's when it gets very terrifying.
2: I felt like every actor really knew who their character was. And when you have that level of commitment from those players, and it just elevates The emotional experience that we feel as an audience going on going into a film yeah no i thought it was uh no i i love the film and i think i can watch it like you know we did watch it quite a few times this year but i i always enjoy it i was very inspired by it and i think it's one of those um, it's gonna yeah uh, stand the test of
1: time i think yeah i think that films they they can transform us it's, it's part of the myth telling, it's part of the importance of storytelling, that there's a value in there, there's a life lesson that we're going to gain from it. And we look at Gladiator. I think that Gladiator holds up so beautifully because it's got those values that are part of the story that are really within the characters. That it can be, it's it's still a historical piece that reflects a past time, but it feels so much about our present, especially now, our present dynamics, our present you know present values in terms of relationships and family, as well as our obligations to our country.
0: Which are the the main themes? Then you would say, in summary, that gladiator has
1: um identities one is important and um family Mm -hmm. i think those two are very i think those would be two that i would elevate as being important
0: and justice maybe or a sense of balancing out Mm -hmm. something that goes beyond again that concept of rome the whispers of it there is a sense that there is some sort of order or balance that the characters are trying to restore the ones that are determined to restore it are working actively too. And the ones that are determined to bring it down, such as Commodus, will bring it down.
1: Which is interesting because that also reminds me of just the theme of just what is home and the idea of an empire and the idea of claiming land taking over. It's like Germania. Now, isn't that their home? Um, and, And Juba reflects on that also in terms of being able to go and return to his home that that becomes significant too.
0: Yeah, Maximus has, has never been to Rome, despite having fought his whole life for it as well. Right, so there's right. that, that comes up as a great motive as well, mm-hmm. of you're fighting for something, but you've never even seen it. So, Stuart, could you tell us a bit more about the book. Uh, the Is there a future edition coming out?
1: There is a future. I'm actually working on a new edition of it, in which case I'm bringing in more contemporary films. This was published about 20 years ago. So I feel there's a, a lot that we've said cinematically that I think needs to be um, explored and addressed in the new version. So I
0: think you know that on our podcast, we only focus on films from the 21st century. As well. So, this book actually just comes in right before the year 2000. It's 1999, and all the films from before that. So, anyone who's looking to explore, there's films like Platoon, Mm -hmm. Casablanca,
1: Mm -hmm. um, Bridge in the River, Kwai. Yeah, I mean, just these are classic. These are now cl- classic films. Mm-hmm. I guess I'm gonna, now going to have to do a 21st century uh, update. Yeah, uh, update, update.
0: But update. I'm I'm going to recommend it out there for for our listeners for anything before the year 2000 <laughs> that, because we're not going to get around to doing it. Stuart has already done all the work there and they
1: yeah. can go read that.
2: Yeah. yeah, no, thank you so much for um, joining us and taking the time to
1: have this little chat with us. It's uh, been a pleasure to have you. Thank you. It's been my pleasure too. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks
0: again for listening. We really appreciate all of the support you give us in continuing to listen to the show. Please do rate and review us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Recommend the show to anyone who you think might be interested. We'll see you in two weeks with another episode.